Amen. Now, although it might sound as though I've been reading to you the shipping forecast or the, uh, the football scores, uh, this document has its place. There's a record here which contains great benefit for us uh, as, the, as the people of God. It reminds me in some ways of uh, in, in the village where I live in, in Bethesden, there's a stone memorial and uh, on that memorial is a, another list of names. It's a list of the names of men who come from our village or who came from our village who lost their lives in the, in the world wars. Uh, most, of, uh, most people who live in the village today never met a single one of them. Uh, and yet still, at, at the bottom of that uh, memorial, it contains these four words. You'll know what they are. We will remember them. We will remember them. That The people who did know them uh, all those years ago, they thought that they were worth remembering. And uh, they, they wanted us today to, to know about their achievements and their sacrifices. They wanted us to honour uh, their heroism. Well, here uh, in this list in the second chapter of Ezra, we have to admit that most of the names are meaningless to us. Um, we can hardly pronounce many of them, as I, I just uh, so ably demonstrated for you. But in God's eyes, these men were heroes, every one of them. They achieved great things for his kingdom. And he's recorded their names uh, for us here because he wants his people Throughout all the ages, he wants churches, believers like us, to remember these people and to honour them and to learn from their example. We can see them in many ways as, as our spiritual forefathers. Uh, these, these were Jewish people. And their land, the, the kingdom of Judah, it had been God's kingdom. The Lord had chosen these people for himself uh, out of all the nations of the world, not because they were, they were good or holy or worthy, uh, but out of his sheer grace. And he'd given them their own land, a land where righteousness would reign, where they, uh, they, they followed God's law, and the Lord himself dwelt among them uh, in his holy city, in, in his holy temple. And so this was a people uh, that was set apart for the Lord to honour and worship and serve him. And it was from amongst, amongst this people and, uh, and from within this land that the saviour of the world would come. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that those great hopes were dashed because uh, the people of Judah turned against the, law, they, uh, the Lord. They flouted his law uh, deliberately and, and continually. And just as he'd warned them, uh, the Lord sent the armies of Babylon to, uh, to destroy Jerusalem, to demolish the temple, and to remove, forcibly remove uh, the people from their promised land. And so it seemed at that time that, uh, that uh, God's purposes for Judah had been destroyed. The people, the land, the house of God, uh, his worship, his salvation, it had all come to an end because of their disobedience. But God was not finished with them yet. That's the great encouragement for us here. Among uh, that, that rabble of, of faithless, rebellious exiles, the Lord was raising up a godly remnant who he intended to use to rebuild his kingdom on earth. And here we have the names 
of that remnant, those who loved the Lord and who loved his people and who loved his glory. They are very much our forefathers in the faith. As we uh, make our way through this chapter, I want to suggest to you then five reasons why uh, these people who are named here are worthy of our admiration and why we today, as God's people, should be inspired to follow in their footsteps. The first reason, I think, why we ought to admire them is because of their hope. Because of their hope. The people of Judah, when they were removed from their land, they were taken thousands of, or many hundreds of miles away, uh, about 500 miles away, to, to live in Babylon. And there, as, as we see in the book of Daniel... They were, they were put under enormous pressure to forget about their heritage, uh, to forget about their old way of life, and especially their belief in the Lord. And many of them did. And they, they settled down in Babylon, they built new lives, they had children, families, they built businesses. They, they became, in all honesty, rather comfortable in that Babylonian setting and, and culture. But still, there was always a small number of them who, who longed and prayed that the Lord would bring his people back to Judah one day and restore his glory there. And their prayers were answered. About 70 years after the exile uh, had begun, the, the Babylonian Empire was toppled by another power, and the new king, Cyrus, he announced that any Jews who wanted to could, uh, could travel to Jerusalem and rebuild God's temple there. And in that place, they would be able to restore the priesthood and the sacrifices and the reading of the law they'd be able to establish the true worship of God once again a, a small handful of people really took up that challenge probably most of them would, would be the, the children or, or perhaps the grandchildren of those original exiles they were led by a man called Sheshbaza he's mentioned in the final verse of chapter 1 um, and he was going to be the governor of Judah, and also by some other men in, uh, in chapter 2 and verse 2, men like Zerubbabel, he was the rightful heir to the Jewish throne, and Jeshua, who was to serve as the high priest. And under these men's leadership, a, a crowd of volunteers assembled together in Babylon and prepared to set, set out on the dangerous journey to Judah. But as you picture that in your mind, don't, don't imagine a kind of disorderly, chaotic mob. Because this chapter shows us that, that as, they, as they assembled there, they, they organised themselves into carefully structured groups. Let me, uh, let me show you how that is. It, from, from verse 3, everyone there is listed according to their ancestry. So you've got there the descendants of Parosh and then Shephatiah and Ara and, and, and so on, all the way down to the sons of Hashem in verse 19. And then uh, in verses 21 to 35, they're, they're identified by the city which their family originated from before uh, the exile. You'll recognize some of those places like Bethlehem and uh, Bethel and Jericho. The observance among you will notice I, I skipped over verse uh, 20, and that's because no one's really sure whether Gibar uh, was a, the name of a family or the name of a city. It could, have, could go either way. But I think this is remarkable. 
when you think about it. The, the, the vast majority of these returning exiles had been born and raised in Babylon. Uh, it's, it was all they'd ever known. These, these family names that they uh, assembled by, that they, they were ancestors from the distant past. And these cities that they spoke of, they'd never actually set eyes on those places. And yet here they were grouping themselves according to their families and their places of origin. You see, they hadn't forgotten. That's the, the key thing for us here. They hadn't forgotten. All, all through those, those very dark years, there were still those faithful few who'd preserved the records and who had, who had treasured the history and who had kept alive the memory of the people and the land that they had come from. And now as soon as they had the opportunity, they were ready to embrace those old identities again. And why is that? Why do they want to return to, their, uh, to, to that land, to their, uh, to their ancestral lands? Why were they so keen? Because this was their inheritance. This was their inheritance. Remember uh, when the Jews had first come into the promised land under Joshua and how the Lord had he divided the territory between them, hadn't he? And each tribe and clan uh, maintained uh, their own bit of land. They cherished it. They passed it on to their children. And although they've been absent now for, for, for all these years, each one of these returning Jews was laying claim to their own portion again. And there, as they were, they were lining up in Babylon, you can imagine them saying to each other, you know, this town, the, those fields that I've heard so much about, they belong to my family. They're ours. They're, they're our inheritance from the Lord. And it was in the hope of that inheritance that they made this treacherous journey and, and took up this daring work. Now, I'm, I'm speaking to you today as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and as members of a Bible-believing church. And you know, I'm sure, that serving the Lord and living for Christ and seeking to build his church can be hard and demanding and exhausting. So what keeps you going in the Lord's service? What drives you to, uh, to keep on meeting together and praying together and exhorting one another and witnessing for Christ together week in, week, week out? Well, the Bible gives us lots of good motivations. But this is one of them, isn't it? Surely. That you have a hope. You have a hope. What did Paul say to the uh, Ephesians? He said, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance. And it's guaranteed to us by the Holy Spirit until we acquire possession of it. And what is that inheritance that belongs to all the saints? Well, Christ told us, didn't he? What shall the meek inherit? The meek shall inherit the earth, the whole world. New heavens and a new earth, a, a world cleansed from sin, the home of righteousness. That's our land. That's where we're heading. That belongs to you, Christian, through Christ Jesus. With his blood... He's purchased you, he's, he's incorporated you, he's, he's made you his holy people, made you his kingdom on earth. And now he's gone ahead 
to prepare your future home. Do you know there is a place earmarked for you in glory? It's got your name on it. And if you follow the Saviour faithfully, if you keep on serving him and, and trusting and enduring in the work of the Lord, then he will lead you to that heavenly reward. And there your, your sufferings and all the hardships and all the sorrows will be gone forever. And we have to ask the question, don't we? If these Jews were prepared to go to such amazing lengths as this for a few fields in Palestine, I hardly need to finish the question, do I? How much more should we be spurred on to serve the Lord Jesus with all our might, the one who saved us for the hope of everlasting glory? This is one of my, one of my bugbears, I'm afraid. We believers do not think enough about heaven. This is where we're going. It should be on our minds every day. It's the home that we're waiting to, to go to and, and dwell in. We need to think about it more. We need this, this hope to, to stir us and, and sustain us as we press on in the service of the Lord. So there we are. We can, we can admire these people for their hope. That's our first lesson from the second chapter uh, of Ezra. The others, uh, I'll, uh, you'll be pleased to hear, are a little bit shorter than that. But we admire them first for their hope. Now, secondly, let's admire them and honour them for their service. For their service. Uh, from verse 36, there are four particular groups of travellers who get a, a special mention. First, there are the priests, verses 36 to 39. And as, as you'll know, the Jewish priests were all descended from Aaron, from the brother of Moses. The Lord had appointed them and them only to present the people's sacrifices before him in the temple. And then in response to, to pronounce God's blessing over the people. Then next there are the Levites, verses 40 to 42. And they, they were given wider duties around the temple. Uh, there are two examples of those duties here, the singers and the gatekeepers. I don't think I need to explain to you what, what their jobs were exactly. But then the third group, verses 43 to 54, um, these are the people who are referred to as the Nethinim. Now, it, it seems that uh, these people began as a, a group of Gentiles who were captured in, in battle and um, uh, they had gone on to convert to, to worship the God of Israel. And uh, they were given some of the more menial tasks around uh, the temple. And the same goes for the, the fourth group, the servants of Solomon, verses 55 to 58. These, these were royal servants for the royal household. And it appears in some of their names, Sophereth, uh, the meaning of that name is the scribe, the, uh, the record keeper. One of the important officials of, of the king. Um, Pokereth, that's an interesting one. It means the gazelle keeper. Uh, remember, Solomon was a great zoologist. He must have had people to look after his animals. And that must have continued uh, in the royal family uh, through the years. But here's the funny thing about all these, these, these four groups. These people weren't actually priests 
or Levites or temple workers or, or royal servants, were they? They weren't. These, these people had never done those jobs in their life. And yet, as descendants of those who had uh, done those roles, these people were desperate to be identified with them. So there they are as they're gathering again, and here's one of them. says to his friend, look, okay, I, I know there's no temple standing, there hasn't been for years, but I'm still a priest as far as I'm concerned. Another one says, yes, the... Uh, uh, the, the choir hasn't rehearsed for, for decades now, but, but I'm still a member of it. I'm, I'm, I'm part of the, the tenor section. And here's another person. I'm, I'm, I'm a royal servant. There's no king to actually serve right now, but I'm still a royal servant. That's why they were going to Judah. They were going there to take up those roles again. And they, and they were looking forward to it. One of them, one of the, the Levites perhaps, or the temple servants. I can't wait to get there. I'm, I'm going to close the gates of the temple each night. And another one's saying, I'm, I'm going to light the lamps in the morning. I can't wait. See, however humble their work might be, these people took pride in whatever service they could do for the Lord. Whatever it was, they saw it as a great privilege. Is that how you think of your part? in the church here, whatever it might be. Um, the Lord has blessed you with a pastor, and he and, uh, and your elders, they, they're called to, to lead you and teach you and care for your souls. Um, but he's given you deacons as well, and I'm sure they play a vital role in the fellowship. And, and so do the Sunday school teachers as they, as they labour week by week. Maybe that's not you. Maybe, maybe you serve the tea and biscuits. Well, you do an important job too. And, uh, and so do the door stewards who give a, a warm welcome. And so do those who, who clean the building. Every act of service in the kingdom of God is, is greatly valuable to him. I expect there are times when you might get a little bit fed up in the work that you do. As you, you pour in all that time and effort... Perhaps sometimes you, you feel you're not getting anywhere, you feel undervalued, or perhaps you're just tired. Well, when you feel that way, remember how these, feel, uh, these people felt about their service. And then turn to, uh, at those times, remind yourself of Psalm 84 and verse 10. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. At those times, just, just think to yourself, I am one of Christ's servants. I do belong to him. How, how blessed I am. I'm, I'm sweeping this floor because he saved me. And what a privilege it is to, to do anything at all for the one who gave his life for me. We ought to be encouraged Encouraged by these, these returning exiles, by their hope and also by their service, their dedication to the service of the Lord and his people. We should be encouraged and inspired, thirdly, by their purity. In, uh, in verses 59 and 60, 
we read of some travellers who hadn't remembered their inheritance. They could say where they'd been living in Babylon, Tel Mela, Tel Harsha, and, and, and so on, but they didn't know where their families had come from in Judah. In fact, there was nothing to prove they were Jewish at all. Now, these people were, were allowed to accompany the group uh, that was going back to Judah, but it was decided that they, they couldn't be recognized as a part of God's people. They couldn't have a portion in the land there. And then in verses uh, 61 to 63, there, there were some people who said they were priests, but they couldn't show that, that they were descended from Aaron. And so the governor, Sheshbazzar, uh, he ruled that they were not allowed to serve in the temple and, unless and until the Lord indicated otherwise. How does that decision strike you? It's pretty strict, isn't it? It must have been very disappointing. He, he's being very black and white about it, this governor. Why is he being like that? Well, because this is exactly where the people had gone wrong in the past. Their ancestors in Judah, who were meant to be a holy nation, set apart for the Lord, they had mixed with the unclean peoples around them. They'd married foreign wives, they'd, they'd made treaties with other nations, they'd worshipped their false gods and, and, and corrupted the worship of the temple. And so this generation's return to Judah was very much a last-ditch attempt to make it work. They were going to get it right this time. They were urgent about that, about following God's law to the letter this time, to keep themselves pure, to, to stay in the land, to remain in God's blessing. How do you think the governor's decision went down, though, when he told these people that they were out, that they were excluded? He does sound quite harsh, doesn't he? And I'm sure he'll have been accused of being judgmental or unkind, uncaring. I expect he found it quite hard himself. You know, he'll, he'll, he'll have felt um, really quite mean in saying what he had to say. You see, these returning exiles, they understood how essential it was that the purity of God's people can never be compromised. There are times when, when a church faces this kind of choice, a choice between purity and obedience to God and something that would be an easier option, one that might feel more, more loving, more compassionate. When there's a, a church member uh, who who's engaged in sinful behaviour and, and won't repent of it, the Bible is clear what the church must do at those times. But what an awful decision it is to have to make to, to put that person out of fellowship. And yet, if the church is, is, is going to preserve its distinctiveness, its holiness for the Lord, what choice do you have? It's hard, isn't it? Well, here's a, here's a Christian girl, a young lady. She asks her pa pastor to, to marry her, to conduct her wedding to an unbeliever. Can he do it? No. Will that upset her and her family? 
Yes, it will. Undoubtedly. Well, here's someone who's, uh, who's moved from another area. They, they've asked for a transfer. They want to transfer their membership to, to your church uh, from another congregation. But talking to them, you're, you're just not convinced they really understand the gospel. You're not sure they're really saved. But how insensitive, how unkind would you look if you were to actually say that to them? These are just a few examples, but but, uh, there are times, aren't there, when the people of God have to take a firm line to preserve the integrity of the church. And we owe it to Christ. We owe it to the one who has died to redeem us from the world and to make us a holy people for himself. So if in in this coming year, perhaps, you find yourselves as a church facing a difficult decision of of this nature, remember then, think back to these returning exiles. Remember their God honoring commitment to purity. Here's a fourth thing which we can admire them for today we can admire them for their courage. Here's verse 64. The whole assembly together was 42,360. And then if you add to that, if you're, maybe some of you have already, you're quick with, with your sums, but add to that the servants and the singers from verse 65, you come to just a, a smidgen under 50,000, all told. That might, might sound large to us, but compare that to the 600,000 Israeli men who left Egypt in the Exodus, plus their wives and their children. And the nation had only grown since then. So these 50,000 were a tiny minority. They were a remnant of a remnant. They they were the, the weak, pathetic outliers. How were they going to survive this treacherous journey? How were they going to eke out an existence when they got there? The vast majority of the the, the exiles, they they did the sensible thing. They stayed put in Babylon. They were settled there. They were comfortable, secure. They weren't going to leave all of that to go and live in in the, the, the heap of rubble in Jerusalem. So how much courage did these few people need to be the odd ones out and to do God's will? how hard it must have been for them to stand apart from so many friends, neighbours, family members, from from those who were meant to be God's people. But there are times when going God's way will leave you in the minority, even among professing Christians. Have you ever been chatting to someone from another church, perhaps in the area, and They've asked you, why isn't your fellowship in the, in the churches together? Why don't you join in our, our ecumenical meetings? Why, why, why won't you recognize us as, as brothers and sisters? And you, have to, you take a deep breath and, and, and you have to say, well, the thing is, I, I'm not sure we are all brothers and sisters. What, what do you think a Christian is? But it takes courage, doesn't it, to go out on a limb like that? 
there are lots of evangelical churches um, that are they're turning their services into fun and entertainment. They're forgetting what worship is and, and, and who it's for. A lot of congregations have moved away from direct evangelism, proclaiming the gospel, and, and, and got caught up instead in, in social causes and community work. There are some who are, who are playing down the Bible's teaching on, on moral issues for fear of putting people off. And this is the way that so many fellowships are going. That's, the, that's the, the way things are swimming. And the hard fact is that we cannot stand with them, with other churches even, when they depart from God's commands. We have no option but to follow God's call and be faithful to his word. But that can be a lonely path, I know. What do people say about your church? Do they call it antiquated? Are you, are you labelled isolationist? Arrogant, even? You know that's not true. But it still hurts, doesn't it? And it takes courage. It takes courage to hold to the word of God when so many others are not. takes courage to walk the path that Jesus walked. This is the way he went, isn't it? He, he stood alone among his people. And we can trust him to be with us as we follow his commands. And we can be inspired as well by these returning exiles and their tremendous courage to stand alone as they followed the Lord. Well, here's one final reason why we ought to be admiring them and inspired by them. Because of their generosity their generosity let's uh, read again verses 68 and 69 some of the heads of the father's houses when they came to the house of the lord which is in jerusalem or rather the site where it had once been offered freely for the house of god to erect it in its place according to their ability they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas 5,000 minas of silver and 100 priestly garments. just want to think about their, their giving very briefly. When did they give? They gave as soon as they could. And as soon as they arrived at the house of the Lord. They didn't put it off to another day. How did they give? Well, it says they offered freely. They weren't told to. And not everybody did. But those who did give, did it willingly. Because they wanted to. What did they give? They gave what they could. According to their ability, we're told. They'd, they'd thought about this. They'd, perhaps when they were back in Babylon, they'd, they'd considered it in advance. They thought it through. They brought these items all the way there with them to contribute to the cause of God. What does the New Testament teach uh, about giving to the Lord's work? Pretty much the same thing. Here's 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. And 2 Corinthians 9, and verse 7. Each one must give as he has made up his mind. Not reluctantly, 
or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You see then, it's not how much you give, it's the spirit in which you give it. God's looking at the heart of the giver, not the size of the gift. But he recorded the generosity of these men and their generous spirit as an example for us in the church. If you've been perhaps getting lax in your giving or, or if, you've, um, if you've felt that grudging reluctance when you do, remember, remember how they gave. Deliberately, freely, happily. And think how much more reason we have than they did. Think of our saviour, how he, he gave everything he had for us. How he gave up the riches of heaven and, uh, and experienced poverty that we might become rich. How he laid down his very life for us. Shouldn't that make us cheerful, enthusiastic givers as we, as we seek to return his love for us? So there we are. Will you remember these forefathers in the faith? Will you remember their hope and their service, their purity, their courage, their generosity? How are we to do that? Well, just as uh, before we close, Psalm 126, I think, is very helpful in showing us how to actively remember those who have set us such a good example. Psalm 126, it teaches us to look back and to, uh, to rejoice in, in what God has done in the past. But it also encourages us to press on in the present, in obedience and faith, and then to look to the future in the promise that the Lord will, will honour and bless our labours for him. So let me close now by reading that psalm to you, 126. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who, reap, who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Well, may that be your experience in this church in the coming year to the glory of our Lord Jesus.